The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and his life, this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study in 1 John this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship uh, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have provided everything we need for our spiritual life, that everything is based on who Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross. There on the cross, He paid the price for sin in full. And at salvation, we receive all of the spiritual assets that we need to live the spiritual life. And Father, the only thing that we need is to learn what these assets are and how to put them into place so that we can utilize them with skill under the Old Testament principle of wisdom that we might be able to glorify You in all that we think and all that we do. Father, as we study Your Word today, we pray that we would be challenged by the things we study and responsive to that challenge, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, and we continue in this second section of the uh, introduction, where John is expanding on the whole concept of fellowship and fellowship dynamics. The whole concept of fellowship and fellowship dynamics. I've made the point repeatedly that we often make the mistake... Um, of talking about being simply in fellowship and assuming by that phraseology that it's sort of a static thing. In one sense it is, but in another sense it's not. That John uses the verb echo, meaning to have or to hold something, and that we have fellowship, we enjoy fellowship. Fellowship is something that's dynamic. It's not something that is simply static. And the verbs that are used related to Fellowship are important. The other words like walking by means of the Spirit, abiding in Christ, these are verbs that flesh out other aspects of our fellowship. 1 John 1, 5-2-2, John lays down the foundational concept of fellowship and the necessity of being cleansed from sin in order to be restored to fellowship and advance in the spiritual life. Starting in 2.3, he begins to build on the advanced concept of what it means to know God. You see, the issue in being in fellowship is not simply to be in fellowship. The issue is learning to know God, develop a relationship with God, so that we advance to spiritual maturity. Now, in the past few weeks, we've gotten into this first paragraph, beginning in 1 John 2.3, which reads, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. John is giving us a test, a little self-test, self-evaluation, to see if we are advancing into spiritual adulthood. The test is, if we keep His commandments. The if is a third-class condition. Sometimes we will, sometimes we won't. And the issue for the advancing believer, the test for the advancing believer, is how consistently we obey the mandates of Scripture and apply the principles of doctrine in our thinking and in our living. So the principles laid down in verse 3, and then we get the first example of that in verse 4. 
the negative side, the one who says, I have come to know him. This is the person who claims to have reached spiritual adulthood, claims to have come to know God, and knowing him, we know from our study, does not mean simply academic awareness of God. It doesn't mean simply knowing academic things about God. You can know things about a person without knowing the person. To know a person involves relationship, involves time. It involves, first of all, learning things about someone and then spending time with them and having that personal, uh, that dynamic of a personal relationship. It's not salvation. For we saw in our study of the use of the perfect active indicative, we have come to know him, that that was used, that same tense was used in Jesus' conversation with Philip in John chapter 14, where Philip is clearly saved, and Jesus says, How long have I been with you, Philip, and you have not yet come to know me? So you can be saved and not know God. One who says, I have come to know Him. There's a test. A person claims to have come to know God, which is, as we have seen, uh, an advanced stage of the spiritual life, called, we'll call spiritual adulthood. The one who claims to have reached that stage and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This person does, doesn't keep his commandments, does not know God, doesn't know things about God, and doesn't have that relationship with God, and so they're a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, I'm making comparisons. The terminology, phraseology and terminology used in this, these next few verses is crucial. If we're going to really understand what John has to say, and believe me, this is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to interpret. The Greek is pretty simple, but to understand what John is saying involves a, a broad understanding of Scripture. I think it starts by understanding what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse. This is one reason why we began this study. We just got through uh, back in December with our study of the Gospel of John, and we spent a good portion of time last summer and early fall going through the Upper Room Discourse. And having studied that, with all of that somewhat fresh in our minds, or as fresh as it can be, we're going through 1 John, which is the Apostles' commentary on what Jesus taught in the Upper Room Discourse. It, the more I get into this, I had made this point when we first started studying John, way back years ago, and I've been here three years last Sunday, we started our study of the Gospel of John. And somewhere that fall, we got into John chapter 3 and Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus. And I said the interesting thing about John is he was about 18 or 19 years of age when he became a disciple of Jesus. And like many impressionable young people who are overwhelmed by a dynamic, charismatic personality... And, of course, the most dynamic, charismatic personality, and I use the term charismatic not in a theological sense, the most dynamic, charismatic personality of all time is our Lord Jesus Christ. And John uh, repeatedly is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That tells us that there was a deep personal relationship and attachment and affection between Jesus and our, and, uh, between our Lord and John. So that John is impressed by Jesus. So much so that John imitates his teacher in a way many of us have seen pastors over the years emulate and imitate the pastors who have impressed them. And eventually, as you grow and mature, you take on and allow your own personality and your own style to take over. But in early years, we're all impressed by certain teachers and pastors who communicate well, communicate clearly, and many times you can tell uh, years later just by listening to somebody who the pastors were perhaps who, who really influenced them because you can still see those, those, that imitation to some degree and that characteristic. Well, the same thing is true for John. If you read John chapter 3, John 3 begins with Jesus' a conversation with Nicodemus. And there's this dialogue taking place. Nicodemus begins in verse 1, and then Jesus talks in verse 2, and he goes back and forth. Starting about verse 10 or 11, Jesus really begins to focus in on the issues with Nicodemus. And then you come to John 3.16, and you say, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Now, who's talking? Is that Jesus? Is that 
Or has John now entered into his own commentary and adding his own editorial comment under the ministry, filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit or the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit? It's hard to tell. And that's the challenge is in many places in the Gospel of John, you see this thing take place where Jesus is talking. And then you realize all of a sudden Jesus isn't talking anymore because it's written in the third person instead of first person and John's talking, but where did the shift take place? You can't tell because John talks like Jesus talked. And we, I'm, I'm impressed as I've been reading. And one of the keys to good Bible study methods, and this is something that Sunday school teachers should pay attention to, if you ever teach a book or you're studying through a book, you ought to read it over and over and over again. And I try in the mornings when I'm studying to read through John, First John, read through Daniel, read through these books over and over again so you just you learn to think like the author thinks and you begin to see things. It's only after you've perhaps read it through the 45th time and, and you really have to force yourself to concentrate at that stage because it's becoming so familiar. But then you begin to see things. And the, the, the way John talks in this epistle is so similar to the way Jesus talked in John 14 and John 15. The vocabulary is the same. And not only is the vocabulary the same, but when you get to, to pass certain passages, and we saw it in this one that we're studying, that um, in this very passage, it starts off, uh, John says, By this we know him we, if we keep his commandments. So the word is referred to as commandments in verse 3. It's referred to as commandments in verse 4. And then it's referred to as wor- the word in verse 5. Jesus says almost the same thing in John 15, or in John 14, and there, at that same point, Jesus started off in that passage about John 14, 21, 22. Jesus is talking about the commandments, and he uses commandments, commandments, and then he shifts to the to word. The same style. I mean, it, it's it it, it impress, should impress us with the fact that that what John is talking about here is the same thing Jesus is talking about in the upper room discourse, and he is under the. Inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expanding on and developing the spiritual life themes of the upper room discourse. So John says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, picks up the same phrase he had used back in verse five of, or verse 6 of chapter 1. There he was saying, If we say, we being believers specifically apostles, the apostolic community, John himself, indicating the possibility that they could say this. If we say that we have fellowship with him, if we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So lying and not practicing the truth is based on a claim to fellowship, yet not walking in the light. Here, it's parallel. You're a liar and truth is not in him. Doctrine is not in him as a result of claiming to know him and not keeping commandments. So the claim to know him and not keeping commandments is tantamount to the same claim made earlier of fellowship which isn't backed up by the lifestyle. And the statement is the same. He's a liar, self-deceived, and doctrine, the truth, that is Bible doctrine, is not operational in the person. He has no relationship with truth, no relationship with doctrine. So we made a couple of observations. Point number one, we, I said, claiming to know God is parallel to walking in the light or walking in fellowship. Claiming to know God, then, is parallel. It's not synonymous. I'm not saying that. Knowing God and walking in fellowship are not the same thing. Because it, but they're parallel in the structure of the verse. So that... John is is building a concept. First, he starts off talking about the importance of walking in fellowship. Then, the ultimate purpose of that is to know God. So, we're at the next level up, claiming to know God. It's a parallel structure. If you either one are negated by a lifestyle of disobedience, which is point two, not keeping the commandments is parallel to walking in darkness. So in the structure of the two two sentences, you you have parallel structure. In one, there's a claim to fellowship. In the other, there's a claim to know God. In one, 
failure is evidenced by walking in darkness, and in the other, by disobedience. This is what I mean by parallel. So that we see that these are related concepts. The foundation is having fellowship. Length of time in fellowship, which John's going to call abiding, produces the uh, knowledge of God. And the claim to know God or to know, have fellowship is going to be evidenced by one's obedience or consistent walking in the light. Point three, therefore, enjoying fellowship and walking in the light, develop our knowledge of God. And the barometer or test for our obedience, for both, is our obedience to divine mandates. Enjoying fellowship and walking in the light, develop our knowledge of God. And the barometer is our obedience to divine mandates. And point four, the result, as we see in the next verse, is a development of our love for God. Verse 5 is the positive, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love for God has truly been brought to completion, brought to maturity. By this, by the fact that we have a love for God, we know that we are in him. And there we bring in a vital concept in John, the phrase, in him. Now, John is not Jesus. When Jesus is talking, Jesus uses the phrase, in me. John 15, 1, he who abides in me. Well, John can't use the phrase, in me. So when John's commenting on that same phrase, he has to use the third person singular. Abide in him. Be in him. So when John uses the phrase, in him, it is parallel to the same meaning or synonymous to what Jesus said when he said, in me. And we saw, we have seen in our study in John 15 that the term in me is a term, a designation, a technical term for fellowship and relationship. It is not to be confused with um, the Apostle Paul's term in Christ. They are, in fact, distinct. So, verse 5 tells us that whoever keeps his word, that is, the believer who continuously, uh, consistently, there will be times of disobedience, but on an overall pattern, keeps his word. It's an iterative present. That means long periods of obedience with uh, interruptions of disobedience. In him the love of God, the love for God, has been brought to maturity. By this, we know that we are in him. That is, we have uh, fellowship with him. This brings us to verse 6, which we began last week. The one who claims to abide in him. The one who claims to abide in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And last time I said there's two phrases crucial to the interpretation of that ver- th- this verse. And the first is the verb meno, translated abide, which means to stay or to remain. And then the prepositional phrase in him. Last time I went through abide, and we saw that abide means does not mean believe, as some contend. This is at the core of the debate, the current debate called the Lordship Free Grace debate. Lordship salvation is the belief that true, that true faith, saving faith, is evidenced by a certain lifestyle. Boy, are we going? Do I have some good stuff for you in about a month? I was able to, uh, one of the beauties of modern technology is that uh, what, what is available on computer now for Bible study programs. I've got, with my Lagos Bible study program now, I have about 450 books on my computer, which means I dearly love it when I get away like I did this last week for a long trip to the West Coast because I can have about six uninterrupted hours of uh, study time on an airplane with no telephone calls or other administrative interruptions, and I can get some things done that I've been wanting to do for a while. And I cranked through some passages on the way out to California that, are, that I will bring to bear about the, when we get to about the end of this chapter and start talking about shame at the judgment seat of Christ. But it ha- all of this relates to this battle between the gospel, the true gospel of free grace, and lordship salvation. And the idea that 
for in Lordship salvation is that the only way you can really know you're saved is by your lifestyle. And that if you have certain sins in your life, then sorry, but you never were saved. You may have thought you believed, but you didn't. Well, that seems to suggest that people aren't smart enough to know what they really believe or not. And it also distorts grace. It distorts it through sort of a backdoor entry of works. They would say that you're saved by grace and not by works. But true faith is evidenced by works. So, see, they bring it in the back door. If those works aren't there, you weren't really saved. Whereas the free grace gospel says that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and works are the consequence of spiritual growth after salvation because growth is the result of what you know. It's the application of learned doctrine. And if all you know at the point of salvation is that Christ died for your sins, then and if that's all you hear... On a theoretical, hypothetical case, let's say a person hears the gospel, that's it, Christ died for your sins, believe on Him, you'll have eternal life. They don't hear anything about confession, post-salvation, recovery. They don't hear anything else about spiritual life. That's all they ever learn. How can they apply anything and grow? Growth is not automatic. That's another problem in Lordship. They, They claim that regeneration is going to automatically produce growth. But that would imply that growth is divorced from knowledge of doctrine. And that's a problem. So this is one of those key things, key passages, crux passages in the debate because the Lordship Advocate takes abide as meaning believe. That's why I go over this again and again because I know from people in the congregation that I talk to that are witnessing to people, they run into this and you must be educated. And uh, I ran into this in Southern California this last week after I taught on the judgment seat of Christ on Thursday night and went through aspects related to this. One of the men came up to me and we were talking for quite a long time afterwards and he had been witnessing to a lady at work and are talking with her. She is a believer and goes to a church in Southern California and the pastor is one of the most nationally known advocates of lordship salvation. And he said, you know, I just couldn't get it through her head that you can still commit any sin for the rest of your life continuously and still be saved. And he, but he was not aware of, quote, the terminology, lordship salvation, or what they believe. He, he knew that what she said was wrong, and he had the truth nailed down. But he didn't understand the terminology and the issues related to the current debate. So I gave him a couple of books to read, and he was quite excited about that. He's a... He, he's a really good guy. He runs a sound system out there at RA's church, and he's just really super. But um, that's why it's important to be educated, to learn this terminology, learn what it is, because you never know when you're going to get in a conversation. And remember, God uses prepared believers. So we all need to be able to handle these arguments. What happens if you're talking to somebody, and they say, well, well, what about this? And And we have to be reminded that Peter said we always have to be ready to give an answer for the hope or confidence that is within us. So I took the time last time to show that abide does not mean believe. If it did, then simple substitution of synonyms could demonstrate that. And yet you have passages where Jesus says, abide in me and I abide in you. And if you were to substitute believe in me and I believe in you, it would make that passage meaningless. So that's just one little piece of, one evidence, one argument you can use to show that. We ended last time just before I got to the next doctrine, which is the doctrine of fellowship, the conditions for fellowship with Christ and the doctrine of abiding in Him. So we will begin with that this morning, the conditions for fellowship, abiding in Christ. Point number one, faith alone in Christ alone initiates salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone initiates salvation. And we begin in our new life in Christ in fellowship with Him. When somebody explained the gospel to you, you responded by saying, I believe that, or thinking, I believe that. It's not a matter of prayer. You don't have to tell God that you believe it. As a matter of fact, about a year, maybe a year and a half, I forget how long ago it was now, but for a long time, I've always closed out a service in the closing prayer with an invitation, expression of salvation, and that right now at this point in time you can tell God the Father that you believe in Jesus Christ. 
suddenly dawned on me with what I call a BFO. It's a blinding flash of the obvious that you don't need to tell God what you believe. God is omniscient and He knows instantly when you are trusting Christ as Savior. And that occurs before you tell Him, before you pray a prayer that is not part of salvation. Simply when you believe the gospel, at that instant you're saved. And at that instant, a number of things happen to us, at least 40 different things happen to us, and 39 of them are irrevocable. That means we can't lose them. One is revocable, and that's fellowship. But we begin in fellowship. See, we have things, we're justified, we're redeemed, we're propitiated, we become sons of God, we become, we're adopted, we're put into the royal family of God. All of those things can't be changed, no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we fail, no matter how horrible we become, no matter how carnal we become, those things never change. Only one thing of the 40 changes, and that is our fellowship with God. But we begin in fellowship with Him. Now, this is the diagram. We have to recognize that there are two different ways in which the Bible talks about our relationship with God. There are the eternal realities, the eternal absolutes of our eternal um, relationship with Him, and then there are the temporal realities of our fellowship with Him in time. The eternal realities we describe with a sphere, and this left circle is defined as the circle of being in Christ. That's Paul's terminology. Over and again, he uses that terminology. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things, uh, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. At the instant of salvation, we are in Christ. We are placed in Christ at the instant of salvation by the non-experiential reality of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit whereby we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. Some of those internal realities include being reconciled to God, so that there is no longer a barrier of sin between us, and we are now at peace with God, Romans chapter 5 uh, covers that doctrine of reconciliation. We are redeemed, we are bought with a price, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the Precious blood is of a lamb without spot or blemish. We are regenerated. We are, made, we are given a new life. God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to us simultaneously a new human spirit. And all, all these things happen instantaneously and simultaneously when we express faith alone in Christ alone. We are adopted into the family of God. We become a new creation. One thing that I realize more and more is how many folks have problems with eternal security, which has always surprised me because I never had a problem with that. I always understood the fact that if somebody gives you a gift, that if they have any integrity whatsoever, they don't take it back. And a gift means that it's now yours no matter what you do with it. And that is exactly what happens at salvation. And once you begin to understand everything that God does for us at the instant of salvation... To think that it's a reversible process is absurd. To think that we lose our adoption, that we lose our our airship with Christ, that we lose our regeneration, that we lose our redemption, that we lose, that we're no longer propitiate, all of these things, that that's reversed is just absurd. God does, does so much for us that it's impossible to go back. We are freed from the control of, positional control and slavery of the sin nature. We're given a new life. In Christ, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, so we have God's uh, divine brand on our soul so that we are His possession and marked as such, and that can never be changed, and we are indwelt. Those are just some of the 40 things that happen to us. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. We're also indwelt by God the Father and God the Son. Now, Temporally, all that's positional. Positional are not experiential realities. We don't feel anything, but they're true. They're absolute. In the realm of spiritual realities, we call this by the overall term being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. At the instant of salvation, we are 
in fellowship. There is complete rapport and harmony between the believer at regeneration, between the believer and God. We are also filled by the Holy Spirit. And as we go forward or advance in the spiritual life, that is what Paul refers to as walking by the Holy Spirit. That picks up that dynamic of advance, of going forward. But we fail, we sin. And when we sin, fellowship is broken. This is point number two. Fellowship can be broken by sin, but recovery is simply through confession or admission, acknowledgement of sin, 1 John 1, nine. And for the new believer, it usually isn't long before he commits some sin, known or unknown, mental or overt, and he's instantly out of fellowship, no longer filled with the Spirit and in carnality. We express it this way. Outside of the right circle, outside, notice it's white to indicate walking in the light as well. When we sin, we are out of the light and in darkness. We are under the control of the sin nature, what Paul calls carnality. When we confess our sins using 1 John 1.9, we are instantly restored to fellowship to a position where we can walk in the light and walk by the Spirit. We exercise our volition to confess sin, and then we need to instantly begin to exercise our volition to apply doctrine and walk by the Spirit. Unfortunately, with most immature believers, what happens is that you exercise your volition to sin again. And often the experience of a baby believer is he's in fellowship, he's out of fellowship, he's in fellowship, he's out of fellowship, and eventually he learns that he needs to just stay in fellowship. And that's our concept of abiding. Now, what happens is that some people always come along and say, well, pastor, that sounds like I can ju- grace just means the way you're using it, I just can go on sinning. Well, that means you can but there are consequences. You stay, stay out of fellowship or you continually bounce in and out where you're mostly under control of the sin nature, then God's going to bring divine discipline to bear in the life. And once you begin to experience some divine discipline, then you begin to realize you don't get off scot-free. Grace is not a license to sin, but it is the privilege of recovery. It's a privilege to recover. One person has observed in a book they wrote on grace that if people in your congregation aren't in some way at times taking advantage of God's grace, then you're not teaching it very clearly. And that's exactly true. Now, some people just tighten up, tense up as soon as they hear that. But it's typical of immature babies to, to irresponsibly use their freedom. Now, I don't want anybody to um, raise their hands or... or blush or, or um, otherwise indicate that I'm talking about you, but we all can think back to times when we were kids and our parents gave us that first taste of freedom and they left us alone. And often what we did with that was to do something we knew we shouldn't do and if they were there and we were under their observation, we wouldn't have done. But now they're gone, so we're going to get away with it or think we're going to get away with it. That's typical of immaturity. And it is silly to think that an immature new believer is going to somehow not use freedom irresponsibly. That's part of growth, is to you begin using your freedom irresponsibly to make bad decisions. Then you realize that you really don't get away with it. And there are consequences, even if somebody's not watching you. And eventually you realize you have to behave in a responsible manner. That's the process of growth. So grace gives us the freedom to fail so that we can have the freedom to succeed. To the degree that you limit somebody's freedom to fail, to that same degree you're going to limit their freedom to succeed. And that's true not only in the spiritual life, but in every other area of life. That's what's so damaging about socialism, and that's what's so damaging about excessive taxation, is it limits people's freedom to fail. And when you limit their freedom to fail, you limit their freedom to succeed, and the bottom line is you've limited their freedoms. So because we have freedom in Christ, we have that freedom to fail, freedom to disobey, and freedom to live in carnality, but that does not mean we are freed from any negative consequences. We're still saved, but there are consequences. Consequences of divine discipline, consequences of loss of blessings in time, and blessings in eternity. Point number three, conditions for fellowship in Christ. 
include the application of the new commandment which Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Notice what John says in 1 John 2.10. Now, this comes up in about, in, in about four verses. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. Now, notice. I want you to think in terms of what John says here. In 1 John 1.6, he talks about walking in the light. Now, he's going to expand on that concept when he comes to verse, chapter 2, verse 10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. There's walking in the light and there's abiding in the light. And they're roughly the same thing. Walking indicates movement. Abiding indicates staying there. And the one who stays there advancing in the spiritual life is going to have impersonal love for his brother. And there's no cause for stumbling in it. Notice that's that's an application of what Jesus said in John 13. So this is going to be indicative of the believer who's staying in fellowship. Remember, the test here is by this we know him if we keep his commandments. The prime commandment is to love one another as I have loved you. So if you're keeping that commandment, you know you're in fellowship. You're abiding in the light. What I want to do here is I want you to see these. Think of a rope. You start off with a rope. You have a lot of small small threads. Those are woven together until you have a thicker piece of string. And then those are woven together, and eventually you have a strong rope, and you can continue to add more strands. Well, what's happening here is John's building it the same way Jesus did in the Upper Room Discourse. You have these, these strings abiding, knowing, walking, and he continually weaves them together and goes back and picks up another strand and weaves it back so we come out with a strong understanding of what fellowship and the dynamics of fellowship are all about. So... Application of the new commandment is indicative of fellowship and abiding. Point four. Walking in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit follows the precedent of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Walking in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. That's Galatians 5.16. We are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So that's walking in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit follows the precedent of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was... From birth, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and filled by the Holy Spirit, and he never lost it because he never sinned. That was the basis of how he handled problems and how he lived. The Scripture teaches that he uh, grew in stature, in Luke 2.42, that he grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with both God and man. That indicates that Jesus Christ, just like you and I, have to grow up spiritually. The difference is, He never got out of fellowship in the process. We get out of fellowship mostly in the process. But the precedent, the pattern that he set was dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Now that's what radically sets apart the church age spiritual life from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament pattern was the Mosaic Law. And with no divine empowerment. It was based on the faith rest drill. In the New Testament, the pattern is not set by the Old Testament, but by Christ during that intervening dispensation of the, uh, the Messianic incarnation. Now, 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So, the one who is abiding, the one who is in fellowship, walks like Jesus walked. And walking is a metaphor for the entire life. So the lifestyle is based on how Christ lived. That's the pattern. 1 John 1.7. Now notice this. 1 John 1.2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now let's apply that to some other things that are said in the Scriptures. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light. Walking in the light, therefore, is how Jesus walked. And that's how we should walk. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have what? Fellowship. See, He takes walking in the light and He brings in the strand of fellowship. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship. We're not just in fellowship. We have fellowship. It's an active concept. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. 
Then we look at Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians 5.8. For you were formerly darkness. That's talking about position there. You were formerly darkness. That is, you were formerly unsaved. You were formerly uh, in the kingdom of Satan. But now you are light in the Lord. That is positional. This is the left circle in the diagram we had up on the overhead. Now we are light in the Lord. That's our position. But that's not always our experience. So that's why it has a present imperative there. Walk as children of light. We are to have that lifestyle. Walk as children of light is how Jesus walked. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the desire of the flesh. If we're walking by the Spirit, we won't sin. So we have to exercise negative volition and get out of fellowship before we bring to completion the lust of the flesh and sin. And then in 5.25 of Galatians, we have another shift. We're there at the conclusion of that whole paragraph, that whole discussion from 5.16 to 25, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk. There it changes the verbs. The first verb in 5.16 was peripateo, meaning to walk step by step, indicating moment by moment dependent. Stoikeo means to follow a path, follow footsteps. That foot, that, that, those footsteps, that path is something that is clear, objective, and objectively seen in front of the believer. And that's the Word of God. That's where the footsteps of the Holy Spirit are. And we are to walk step by step down the path laid out by the Holy Spirit through the revelation of doctrine. So those are the verses that demonstrate the precedence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who lived his life by applying doctrine under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Point five, the next condition for abiding and continuing in fellowship is that we are to have our thinking, our minds saturated with Bible doctrine. We are to have our minds saturated with Bible doctrine. 1 John 2.14, John will go on to say, I have written to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. Now, I want you to look at that a minute. I have written to you fathers because you know Him. Bad translation. Know Him. Have we seen that verb before? 1 John 2.3, By this we know that we, and I say it's a perfect act indicative, which means something that's happened in the past and emphasizing the present reality of a past action. So it should be translated as the New American Standard did in that verse, you have come to know Him. We have the same thing in the Greek here. It's not a present tense like it appears in the English. It is a perfect tense. It should be written, I have written to you fathers because you have come to know Him. Fathers, there in, in those verses he talks about fathers, young men, and babes. Three different stages in the spiritual life. And here he's saying, I've written to you, fathers, you mature believers, because you have come to know Him from the beginning. He doesn't say that about baby believers. He says that about the mature believers. He says, I have, you have come to know Him. How do you come to know Him? Only by knowing His Word. There are a lot of people who walk around thinking about how much they love Jesus. How much they love God. And you'll hear people saying, oh, how I love Jesus, and all these other songs. They say, oh, I love God. But they don't know anything about God. They can't even give you two or three attributes of God. They never read the Scriptures. They have a concept that they've generated within the idolatry of their own emotions and their own mind as to what God is. And they've fallen in love with it. But that's a, that's a mental idolatry. It doesn't have anything to do with the Scriptures. And it only is a result of spending time in the Scriptures under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit do we come to truly know God, not just know about Him, but to have a relationship with Him. Because you have come to know Him who has been from the beginning. Notice how John goes on to say, I have written to you young men because you're strong, and the Word of God abides in you. See, before you can get to be a father, you have to be a young man. And the characteristic of the young man, the adolescent believer, is that the Word of God is what? abiding in you. The Word, remember, I emphasized it earlier in 1 John 1, 3 and 4, He shifts from commandment to Word. So Word here is synonymous with commandments. The commandments are abiding. That means you're keeping the commandments and advancing spiritual maturity. And you have overcome the evil one. 1 John two seventeen. again He states, and the world is passing away and also its lust, 
But the one who does the will of God, that is keeping commandments, applying doctrine in the life, abides forever, stays in fellowship. Points. Then we come to 1 John 3.24, and there John builds on the concept again, says, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. So abiding and walking and obeying the commandments all work together. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, and we know by this that he abides in us by the what? By the Spirit whom he has given us. That's talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that, that's not indwelling, because there the Spirit he has given us is related to abiding, which is fellowship, not a positional concept of being in the light. So John is emphasizing throughout this book that there has to be a knowledge of doctrine. We have to have our soul saturated with his word to be able to know him and to and that is uh, tantamount to abiding in him. Point six not departing from the that fellowship or abiding is also evidence departing from the doctrine taught from the beginning. Fellowship and abiding is also evidenced by not departing from the doctrine taught from the beginning. This is in 1 John 2, verse 24. There John says, As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. Let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. Now, does that remind you of anything? It should. We spent a lot of time on it in 1 John 1. One, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our eyes have handled, concerning the message of life. Then skip to verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father. So in John, 1 John 2.24, he expands on that and brings, relates the idea of abiding to believing what they heard from the beginning. And for, 1 John 1, 3, what they heard from the beginning is linked to fellowship. So we see this connection. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning, the doctrines related to the person and work of Jesus Christ, abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, fellowship is going to be related to right doctrine, not just right behavior. And right doctrine because Jesus Christ set the precedent for the spiritual life in His humanity. And if you don't go to Jesus Christ's humanity and His walking by means of the Spirit as the precedent for the spiritual life, you go back to the Mosaic Law, then what's going to happen? You're not going to be in fellowship. You're not going to have fellowship and you're not going to advance spiritually. And we saw in our lengthy study of dispensations on Wednesday night that 90% of Christians don't have never understood this in church history because they have not seen a distinction between Israel and the church. All other theologies other than dispensationalists held to a replacement theology where the church replaced Israel so they looked to Israel for the precedent for the spiritual life, not to Christ. And so only by chance did they happen to come up with certain principles like confession where they sort of like a, a blind squirrel is going to find a few acorns every now and then and they manage to advance a little bit but not by much. You have to understand these dynamics. Point number seven. There is an emphasis on publicly admitting Christ as Savior not for salvation but it's part of application and it's part of Spiritual growth. By that, I don't mean going out and standing on the street corner and doing some street preaching, but being willing to admit that you trust Christ as Savior when that issue comes up, when you have an opportunity to witness, or when your uh, religious discussion comes up with friends or family or workers, that you are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1, but that you are willing to admit Christ as Savior. First John 4.15, whoever confesses, and we see, we have seen 
In our study, 1 John 1, 9, that confess means to admit or acknowledge. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. If you shut up your mouth as a believer and you're ashamed of Christ, then you're out of fellowship. And you're not going to be advancing or getting the opportunity to be a witness at that point. So whoever admits that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That is part of being in fellowship. Now, in John, there are a number of things that John says about, about abiding that we need to pay attention to. For example, in 1 John 2.28 we read, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If we don't abide... If we don't abide, then we won't have rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and there will be consequences. Well, let's look at some comparisons. Let's look at some comparisons. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10 says, The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So, abiding in the light, there's no cause for stumbling in him. Now, Compare that, to just make notes of these verses. You can look them up and study them later, comparing 1 John 2.10 with 1 John 1, 6 and 7. 1 John 1, 6 and 7 we read, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's stumbling. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So this is going to connect abiding in the light with walking in the light. 1 John 2.24 There we read, As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then we saw in 1 John 1, 1 and 1, 3, the connection between abiding and fellowship. 1 John 2, 28 emphasizes the fact and warns us of shame at the coming of Christ. When Christ comes at the rapture, and all believers, dead and alive, are raptured to be with Him in the clouds, immediately following the rapture is the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord comes back and we have an advance spiritually, then there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ for those who have all their works burned up, so, there's no, so it's all wood, hay, and straw, and there's no gold, silver, and precious stones. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 14 and 15 emphasizes that for that believer, they will be saved, yet is through fire, but they will suffer loss. They will not just not get anything, they will lose something. And that is part of uh, failure and loss of inheritance in the, uh, in the millennial kingdom and eternal state. 1 John 3.6 states, No one who abides in Him sins. Now notice, 1 John 2.28 said that if we abide in Him, we won't have shame. 1 John 3.6 then says, No one who abides in Him, that is, who stays in fellowship, sins. No one who sins has seen or knows Him. So when, when we sin, it, and a, a lifestyle pattern of sin, it indicates that we do not have this personal relationship or knowledge of God. Not salvation, this advanced personal relationship with God. Now we have to understand 1 John 3.6 in light of Galatians 5.16, where we read, But I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the desire of the flesh. And there, I have stated this and taught this over and over again, you have the strongest negation possible in Greek. It's a double negative plus a subjunctive verb which should be translated, walk by means of the Spirit and it will be impossible to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, if it's impossible to sin when you're walking by the Spirit, how come we sin? Because we have to exercise volition first. You may not be fully aware of it, but you do, and I do. Whenever we sin, what preceded that was a decision to stop walking by the Spirit and to run our life on our own. And that, that has to be understood before we can properly interpret 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in Him. Abiding in Him is like walking by the Spirit. When you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. When you're abiding in Him, you're not going to sin. You have to make that volitional decision to stop abiding, stop walking, and then you sin. And the one who sins, present tense, continual lifestyle of sin, uh, that w- no one who sins continuously 
has seen him or knows him. And we're going to see what that means more fully when we get there. Just for a hint of coming attractions, that relates to the person in Galatians 5, 18 and 19, where you have the list of the works of the flesh. And at the end it says the one who does these things, literally proso practice these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the concept of sinning here. It's the one who's practicing those things. You have the same kind of list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that the homosexual, the effeminate, the liar, the uh, uh, murderer, the idolater will not inherit the kingdom. That's the person who never advances spiritually and this characterizes their life. Their life after salvation doesn't change any from their life before salvation. Then we have 1 John 3.24. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. So that's, that, that mutual abiding describes the active, ongoing fellowship of the believer who is learning and applying doctrine under the filling of the Spirit. And then again, John says, we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. See, there, there's that um, cataphoric use of the phrase, we know by this, that is what's, what I'm getting ready to say, by the Spirit whom He has given us. That is, that by being filled with the Spirit, we know that abiding. Now, take that verse and compare it to 1 John 2.3 and 1 John 2.4, and we have the same concept. It's just expanded more by the time we get to 1 John 3.24. 1 John 2.3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So there, keeping his com- we have the principle of keeping His commandments related to coming to know Him. 1 John 3.24 it ties keeping His commandments to abiding in Him. So they're all related. 1 John 3.17 states, But the, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart, that is his thinking against him, hardens his thinking, how does the love for God abide in him? Now remember, 1 John 2.5 said, Whoever keeps his word, part of which is loving one another as I have loved you, in him the love for God has truly been matured. But whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, John says, how does the love for God abide in him? Implying it doesn't. There's no growth, there's no maturity, there's no fellowship there at all. So personal love for God is related to keeping his commandments and related to impersonal love for all mankind as evidence of maturity and growth and the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Now, First John 6 goes on to say, First John 2.6 goes on to say, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. This is the Greek verb of philo, which indicates an economic or moral obligation. There's an obligation on the believer to, walk, to live as Christ lived, to walk as Christ lived. Now, one time I mentioned that to somebody, they said, well, that's legalism. You can't say we have an obligation. Sure you can. Here's the analogy. I'm going to give you a brand new, this is just an illustration, don't get carried away. I'm going to give you a brand new 2001 Jaguar sedan. Now, that's yours. You have your name on the title. It's yours. It's your possession. In fact, you get to pay taxes on it. But it's yours, free of charge. Now, if you don't change the oil, and if you don't have the $800 to $1,100 it needs to have a tune-up every few months, then you're going to not live up to your obligation to take care of it. Now, I never say anything about that when I give you the car, but if you're going to use the car, benefit from it, have the privilege of it, then you have an obligation to take care of it. But if you don't put air in the tires... If you don't change the oil, if you don't, if you don't um, have the tune-ups regularly, then sooner or later, one day you're going to get out there and turn it on and it's not going to go anywhere. It's still yours, isn't it? Nobody's taking it away from you, but you have failed in your obligation so there's no benefit anymore. That's the way it, the spiritual life is for a lot of Christians. They think they're operating on grace and they don't have any obligation to apply doctrine, to learn doctrine, and to change the way they think. 
And so, after a while, they're, they're in complete spiritual failure and their spiritual life isn't doing them any good because they have failed in the obligation that goes with the ownership. They don't lose their spiritual life. They don't lose fellowship. I mean, they don't lose their, their eternal security, but their spiritual life does them no good and they're going to be in divine discipline and end up being miserable in life because they're never going to have what God promised them that went along with salvation, and that is the abundant life of post-salvation sanctification. So that is what John is saying here. The one who abides in Him, who stays in fellowship continuously, ought himself, that is, he has an obligation to live as Christ lived. Now next time we're going to come back and see John's expansion of Jesus and his commentary on Jesus' statement of the new commandment, starting in 1 John 2 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that we have salvation. We thank You for this uh, spiritual life that You have given to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we might be challenged by the things that we have studied to live up to our obligation to walk as Christ walked. But Father, we know that salvation is not based on works, but based on grace. That everything is based on what Christ did on the cross and not who we are or what we do. And we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without eternal life, unsure and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, that He was buried and rose again on the third day, and salvation is your free gift. You can never lose it. It can never be taken away from you because you did nothing to earn it or deserve it. Father, we pray that we would all be challenged by the things that we have studied today and to see the remarkable beauty of your plan for our spiritual life and how clearly it is given in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.